לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamud in Highland Park, New Jersey, the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Shammed. And joining me are my good friends, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Solomon Schechter Day School of Long Island, and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky in New York City, Anshay Chesed in New York City. It's great to see you back from Israel. You're back from Louisville, Kentucky. We're traveling, and uh, Barry, you stayed in, in New... Somebody's got to teach Jewish children. <laughs> anyway, we are so happy to be with you this... Uh, this Parsha talk, because we got an amazing Parsha. We got it, actually, this week is a trifecta, one of the very few trifectas on the Jewish calendar, because this week is Shabbat HaChodesh, Rosh Chodesh. We are welcoming the month of Nisan, and Nisan is the month of the Jewish people, HaChodesh. So we're not going to talk about the Rosh Chodesh portion, but we will talk about HaChodesh portion. But it is also Tazria, one of the most Amazing parshiot in the in the Torah. It's well, it's it's only skin deep though. <laughs> it is. It's um, just oozing with meaning. <laughs> with humility, it's something that that we need to approach. Um, and so we'll start as three aging male rabbis and talk about the parturient. Woman, I never knew the word parturient until I read this parsha. The the woman who gives birth, and and so we have here actually, it's a fascinating um, just opening. the The opening deals with the woman who gives birth. If she gives birth to a male child, uh, she is rendered tame for seven days. For a female child, rendered tame for fourteen days. I I don't know if there's a satisfactory explanation for this we may talk about that in a second but but let's just do the 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 easy part of this which is bring me so it says uh, on the eighth day the child male child will be circumcised so this is the source of the law of circumcision in the torah we also have the source of that in breshit I, maybe you just want to give us a, a note or two about about Brit Milah coming here in the in the in the book of Leviticus. What is its significance in this book? Well, I was just going to observe that uh, you know there's a kind of uh, a halachic theory um, that is exemplified in this passage, which is to say that Breshit is a, a powerful book of stories. It shapes the Jewish people. Um, but it's not considered a book of mitzvot. And so even though milah and circumcision of Abraham is described, that's not, cons- and it just says that in you, all your generations this will happen. It's when it appears in the legal portions of the Torah that we regard it as having halachic significance. There's one other mitzvah in, in, in Breshit, the, the non-eating of the sciatic nerve, which I don't think is repeated elsewhere. It's just, just there. But in the main, 
our legal tradition wants to say that Bereshit is, is a, a something that happened before Moses and the legislation and the giving of mitzvot. This is the one that has, so to speak, this is this is where this is where it cuts deep and uh, and it really applies. Very event. Well, the the fact that the milah takes place on the eighth day is of crucial significance here because it's after the woman has completed her first stage of impurity and she is part of the community that's going to welcome the eight-day-old boy into its midst, not just as the mother, which is obvious, but as a member of the community. And so it's significant that it takes place after this first week. Right. So, so that may, in fact, be one of the reasons why for a boy, she is rendered for seven days so that she can be uh, present or, or you know, functional uh, at, at, at the boy's bris. Um, and, and there may be other reasons uh, entirely. Um, but I wanted to just um, to, to approach with, I guess, humility this theme, which is the idea that a woman in childbirth is rendered tame. And a very compelling um, idea came up in, in uh, the work of the late uh, Tikva Feimerkensky, studies in Bible and biblical, and what, feminist criticism? Feminist here? criticism. Right, a book which uh, you can see how, how how worn it is in my library, um, in which she talks about um, that that birth, whenever when we have birth in in the experience of birth, there is actually the proximity to 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 death, and that um, what is it that that is happening at this at this kind of junction that whenever there's a birth, there's also a death. Whenever there's a death, there's also a birth. And it's perhaps because of this liminality, this, this approaching of the boundary, uh, that, um, that you, you have this, this, this sense that you are, that there's a need to recover from that. That, that the experience of birth, we could, we could talk about the idea of the danger and that, and that you know, the, the, the vulnerability of the parturient woman at the experience of death in, in pre-modern times, but also, you know, to a certain extent in modern times, birth is a dangerous experience still for, for, for many women, especially women in poverty. Um, but, but there is a sense that, that you're going from one realm to, the, to another realm and that contact at the boundary of where uh, death and life meet is uh, a contact that renders you impure. I don't know if you want to react to that. Go ahead. Again, it's significant, I think, that this is in the priestly literature because their preoccupation is with what is holy, which is making that distinction between life and death. As we saw last week in Parshat Shmini, the mourning rites of Aaron and his sons is circumscribed because the anointing oil was on Aaron as the high priest, and they were the priests. They're not allowed to participate in rites of death, even when it's their close relatives. And I think that, you know, Borak Levine in his commentary on uh, Leviticus, which I think was around the same time that Tikhar Feimerkansky was writing, suggests an alternate view of purity and impurity, Tumah uh, Tahara, and its susceptibility and protection, that the 
you become Tameh when you enter a stage where you are threatened or are vulnerable to danger, and you become pure when you are no longer in that danger. And as you rightly noted, Elliot, birth is one of the, the great times of being threatened by death, you know, and that's historically always been the case, um, you know, and the first two years of a child's life are also, in general, the most dangerous, right? When the child gets to be two, then they're assured more or less of a normal lifespan. It's until they get to two that there are all sorts of problems, which many of us are perhaps unaware of because we have, we've had such advances in our medical system um, which you know is virtually eradicated child childhood disease. It's also, I think, look, you know, you you there's a mystery. There's a mystery that 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 you come into contact with at, at the moment of a birth. You know, it's it's um, a very apprehensive time, uh, time filled with anxiety and a time filled with um, you know tremendous awe, terror as well, um, and. Um, you know, all of these things are, are 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 swirling around you. I mean, the swirling, of course, for the mother more you more more so, but uh, for any parent who is present or you know adjacent, uh, these this is a uh, quite awesome, terrifying everything at once. It's 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 one of those life moments that uh, are are completely um, you know uh, indescribable, ineffable. You know, yeah, I just wanted to add one other. Oh, go ahead, Joe. You go ahead. Okay, I wanted to add just one other point that, you know, as was mentioned, Genesis is about family stories. It's the personal. And Leviticus and the priesthood is about the national story. And what we sometimes lose sight of is that when the woman is exposed to danger of childbirth, that threatens her, it threatens the baby, but in, it also threatens the entire community. Yeah. Because death does not just belong to the person who dies and their immediate family, it is a danger to the entire community. I just wanted to illustrate the point you guys were making about the uh, the passing into the danger zone. So the woman has to bring a chatat, has to bring an offering. Um, and chatat, we usually say, you know, a sin offering. And that raises this kind of like obvious question, like, what sin? You know, having, we think, we think having a child is a good thing. What, what does she do wrong? And I think this is a good example of what Jacob Milgram, the great Bible scholar, we mentioned Baruch Levine, we mentioned Tickle Primer Gensky. We got to have Jacob Milgram. We got to throw the whole bunch just, of them in there. Just name uh, dropping here. Okay. We're just name dropping. As Aviva Zornberg said, no, but uh, um, Milgram said, you know, chatat, it's a mistranslation. I think it is a quote, sin offering. It's a purification offering. Lehit chate or chitui is a purification. Whatever the, whatever the uh, etymology of that word might have been, She's bringing a purification offering, and, and it's the chiper aleha, the kohen atones for her. It doesn't mean she's done something wrong. It means she has entered the situation of danger where she might die. Yeah. And so somehow bringing her back to normalcy and order from this time of very, you know, electric, terrifying stuff, th those sacrifices are seen to restore order and the childbirth is, is seen to be a place of great disorder. I, I have been, I, I'm, each of us has four kids. I, I'm gonna guess that each of you have been present for four births as I have been present for four births. In a hospital with modern medical technology, it's a place of disorder and craziness. 
in the ancient world, it must have only been more so and really terrifying. And so restoring it, restoring her to like normality, order, feeling in control again, I think that this ritual part has a has a real um, value to play. Well, just just you know, I mean, the the one uh, scene in in the Torah where where we we definitely perceive it to be a moment of danger is the birth of Benjamin, right? Where where fatikash she 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 has difficulty as the baby is born, and uh, and and then the baby is born, and the the mialedet says. Don't worry, it's a boy, you know, and and uh, she names him Ben Oni, and then Yaakov names him Benjamin, and it's such a remarkable scene that illustrates, you know, in in the narrative way, what is happening here, the the, the terrible danger that is incurred by by women in, in childbirth, which was more the norm than than not, and as I said, even in in populations in the United States, you know, that that experience is. Uh, is had as it is elsewhere. As a a technical matter in Jewish law, strange though this is, and 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 the Talmud actually floats the alternative position, but the position that seems to have won out, normative position, is that men are commanded to pru to have children, and women are not commanded. Obviously, you know, certainly uh, before before in vitro fertilization, and and even still, basically, you need. Uh, a male and a female contribution, uh, genetic genetic contribution. But I, I like to think, I don't know if this is true or not, but it seems to me that one reason why women might not be considered quote-unquote commanded to have children is that it's a life-threatening experience. Right. You can't command somebody to, to, uh, to risk their lives. Um, I want to just fl- ask a question and hear what you guys have to think. I mean, Brit Mila deep, 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 deep part of Judaism. It's the blood covenant. It's, it's you know, even Spinoza, who hated Judaism, thought that the binding power of Brit Milah would, would keep this people together. And, and it is marking, you know, the body in, you know, literally in flesh and blood, at least the male body. And I think in our world, it's increasingly uh, controversial there aren't very many other circumstances in which we intentionally wound babies. Uh, we think it's worth it. I mean, there's a great midrash. Uh, Rabbi, the, the wicked Turnus Rufus, the Roman guy, asks Rabbi Akiva, what's better, God's deeds or human deeds? And Rabbi Akiva says, well, human deeds. And, and Turnus Rufus says, well, can you make the sun and can you make the mountains? And he says, uh, this is this is not what I'm, I'm talking about. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about... Uh, Turnus Rufus comes on, goes on, and says, um, "You know, well, if if you think uh, if you think you know uh, God's deeds are so terrific, um, how come people aren't born circumcised? Men aren't born circumcised." And Rabbi Akiva says, "Gives us something to do to to take nature and bring it up a notch, to take wheat and turn it into bread, and to take to take all kinds of natural products and turn them into something uh, up a notch." And so, to the human body, you take it. You take the male human body, baby body, and give it what we take to be some kind of a refinement, not a ritual wound or something like that. But I, I just, I think it's kind of interesting. I, I said I would ask a question. I've talked for a long time now, but do you like have you have you seen um, 
Have you seen greater resistance? Do you think we will see greater resistance? I think what we will. Think? I think it's part. It, it it does come in waves. I think we're in a we're in a moment, both in the general culture and in Jewish culture, where the whole idea of the body uh, is is now um, part of identity, and and the autonomy over the body is part of your identity. And what circumcision is claiming is that the body belongs to uh, a culture that 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 is in conflict with the radical autonomy of people. I think the the movement known as intactivism uh, has with it um, some. Uh, I, I'm very critical of it. Obvi- you know, I want to say obviously, but it's it's uh, there is not a, a small bit of anti-Semitism in that. Um, and in general, there is there is a, a sense that that um, you know in in a world where you see things like, for example, tattooing is very very common and a public demonstration of identity. The idea that I want to control my body and what is on it and how it is configured, I think, is a very very powerful part. And and so uh, I, I can consider myself lucky that. As a rabbi, I haven't had too many of these kinds of uh, discussions, but I know from colleagues that they're having more and more of these discussions. No question about it. And, and I've only had my I've only had my first um, and, such. Discussion. Yeah, and, and it, what I want to say is that that uh, there it's not reconcilable. You know, the 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 position the position um, you know the anti circumcision position is is rooted in in almost an equivalent irrational, you know, foundation as, as ours is ours, you know, we, we, it comes from, you know, belief in 4,000 years of Jewish practice or 4,000 years of, of practice rooted in, in the biblical experience. You know, you, you, it's hard to argue with that. And, um, people are unmoved by, by that. I've only had my first such conversation and it isn't really about the issues that you're talking about now with, with this particular person. Um, it, it actually is, was a different issue, which is which has to do, or at least it, it may involve this also, but another uh, nuance of the question for this person has to do with the sort of fundamental, uh, this religion is about men and their and their male organs. And, and it's absolutely true. You know, I have wonderful baby namings for girls and I, and I love them and I'm glad, glad in the 21st century that in the rabbinate, I've been able to have, you know, baby names for girls that are as celebratory. At, but you know what? They're, they're, it's, this is 4,000 years of Jewish practice. It's flesh and blood. It's powerful. That, 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 that the equivalent ceremony for girls just isn't. Yeah, good thing that it isn't, okay? Sorry. You know, this is the closest that we get to, to anything remotely sacrificial in nature. And, and that... That hovers at the experience, okay? It's a good thing so that I don't practice anything surgical on, on girls. Go ahead. I think that, you know, one thing we we recognize is that part of the power of the ritual is its primitive nature. And its primitive nature is inextricably linked to blood. What distinguishes a Brit Milah from a Simchat Bada, baby name for a girl, is that there is no blood. And there's certainly, as a result, a lot less dramatic tension. We can make the same observation by comparing sacrifice and prayer. Sacrifice, I think, because of the blood involved, 
commands our attention in a way that most of us who take prayer seriously even and try to dive in three times a day with Kavanah find it very difficult to do because it lacks some dramatic tension. Yeah. You know, it was, you know, the, the first great Dr. J, Samuel Johnson, who said there is nothing like a hanging to concentrate the mind. And not that I want to compare hanging to a circumcision. I think, though, that we have to recognize that there is something good and something beautiful about attaching ourselves to a, a multi-thousand-year tradition and standing, you know, making our link with it and carrying the chain forward. And did he play for the Sixers also? <laughs> I think he was a minor league player at that he, time. He was, he was the 76 1776. <laughs> I wanted to use what you said as a segue to Parshat HaChodesh. What could be a better connection between Brit Milah uh, and the sacrifice, you know, the, the Passover ritual than the appearance of blood? So HaChodesh, we've, we've talked about it in its context, but since this, this is Shabbat HaChodesh, takes us back to chapter 12 in the book of Exodus, we will be taking out three Torahs, one for uh, the HaChodesh and one for the Rosh Chodesh reading this week. So it starts off by saying, HaChodesh Hazel Lachem, Rosh Chodeshim. This, is the, this month shall be to you the first of all months. Rishon Hu Lachem, the Chodesh Hashanah. Uh, and, and in this commandment of the Passover ritual, Moses speaks to the entire people and says, everybody should teish. You take a, a, a lamb, each family will take, each household will take a lamb. I always like to comment on that, that the, the Passover experience, you know, is the family experience par excellence, and that in, the, in this formation of, the, um, of, the, of the, the free community, we are starting with the building block of family. That that the uh, the enslaved community is the community that has the family system destroyed, uh, but the restored and free community is the community that has the the family validated. And the family, the validation of the family happens through uh, the ritual of the korban pesah, the ritual of the, of of preparing this meal and to eating this meal as a family. Um, and of course, preparing the meal involves slaughtering uh, a lamb and taking the blood and putting the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. And we've talked about it in the past, and just as a reminder, it's, it's a way of identifying, but it's also a way of sanctifying. And it's also saying in the most demonstrative way that that, that whole, I always think of this, you know, uh, it's, it's, I don't know what, what that, the, the Egyptian home looked like, but I'm thinking like, you know, the, the, uh, an igloo, a kind of dome, you know, where, where they place the door, the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel. And, and it's, and, and in a way it's, it's the consecration of the home, like you're consecrating the altar. It's almost as if to say that the home becomes like this kind of three, this, altar in which you are living and then you are i'm not sure where are you where are you roasting this you're you got to be roasting the thing outside right outside got to be outside yeah got to be outside so 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 then you're eating it inside i guess you're eating it with your loins girded and your clothes you're you're wearing your clothes your staff in hand all everything you're ready to go you are supposed to eat this uh meal 
with matzot and merarim, and this this becomes the the way that the people um, nourish themselves, bind themselves together, and prepare for what is ahead. So I just want you to give me some give me some Torah here. Comment on this. <laughs> give me give me some some. You know, by the way, I I wasn't thinking about this until you just until you just pointed out, and it's only logical that. You know the, the cooking must have been outside for fire safety as well as just tremendous heat and everything. Smoke. Um, once you get it inside, it shall be eaten in a single house. You can't take the meat out of the house. I think that reinforces what you said about the home as altar. Once once you get it into the place of, of sacred eating, you got to stay there. And, and it, it also says that the people couldn't go outside because of the fear of the angel of death. Um, you know, this is like, I think this is, of course, exactly as you said, a wonderful tight transition. At a brit milah, we recite the verse, you know, he, the Hebrew word for blood is typically speaking a plural word, um, like mayim, water, plural, damim, blood, plural. Um, and and the, we recite this verse from Ezekiel, you shall live in your bloods, to which the, the classic midrash is dam pesach, dam brit. Yeah, the, the blood on the, on the blood on the doorpost of Passover, the blood of the lamb, the, the blood of circumcision. These are these covenantal acts that bind people together, flesh and blood. And okay, it is exactly as Barry said. Kind of, it, it, its power is its is its rawness, its primitivity. But that's kind of what makes it work. This is a blood ritual. And the people of Israel, though we strongly have an ethos of openness to conversion and everything like that, there is a way in which we have a talking about membership in the people of Israel that it is flesh and blood. And, you know, that's that's why our, our rituals are what they are. So it provides us with an interesting counterpoint to the first plague, which is turning the water into blood taking the life force, and both blood and water are life forces, and ruining it. Neither the blood nor the water is potable once they are mixed. And at the end, with the 10th plague, the blood is prophylactic or therapeutic. It is what allows life to continue because it protects the Israelite household from the angel of death, the mashchit. And the other thing I would add here is that there are a lot of transitions, as you suggested, Elliot, you know, inside the house, outside the house, but also between slavery and freedom. And the image that we're left with, I think, is that we have the family unit, and we have to mention that if the family was too small, they have to join another household oh, yeah. because there could be nothing left over. And the and I think for the same reason, you couldn't take anything out of the house, you know, what what happens here stays here, so to speak, um, to borrow a modern idiom. But this moment of redemption is on the private level, and it doesn't become national until the morning when they leave Egypt. Well, they, they leave in the middle of the night. and, and Well, know, there are two versions in the Torah. We, we, so. we all have, we debate this because I, I, I actually think that they left the, 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 the lamb roasting and they didn't eat it, and they they only eat the matzah the following day. But we we can we that can, would run afoul of Baal Tashkit. That, well, the whole, that's the whole thing. The whole thing is that they you know 
there's something sacred to the Egyptian and it's burning. It's burning in front of the Egyptians. And and I so, I, I accord this to as the, the greatest moment of Israel is that that they're leaving on an empty stomach and and that itself functions as a barrier, a boundary, the same way that fasting functions. And and I, I you know one of these days, I know, I know you guys disagree with me on this. <laughs> okay, but I have to add something because the way you're presenting it, it seems like the lamb is being roasted lahachis simply to anger the Egyptians, and I think that takes away from the the holiday. I, I don't and think so. Fact, no, no, no. I think they, the, the, this is the way. I think this is the way the Torah works. The Torah works is here's the plan. The plan is you're supposed to eat it. And, and everything goes awry. Look, we just read a Parsha last week where, where here's the plan. The plan is you're going to have a celebration. You're going to inaugurate this, the, 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 the sanctuary and you're going to have a great feast. And then, of course, you know, what happens? It's, uh, you know, the two sons of Aaron get zapped. So here the plan is that, yeah, they're supposed to eat it. Yeah, they're supposed to have the full, you know, leave on a full stomach. They're supposed to be completely nourished. But what happens? What happens is that Pharaoh... You know, and the entire Egyptian goes into a cataclysm. They scream and yell and they say, get the, get them out of here. It's not their plan. I don't know. Dumbfounded? Quiet? <laughs> Just dumb. <laughs> let, me, let me move to another theme, okay? <laughs> All right. On the theme of family and on the theme of community. And this, this is... Uh, you know, Pesach is really the the particular experience. The, it, it it's it's a private experience as a family, and a and a community. I'm getting. I, I want to say Sukkot is the you know Sukkot is for everybody, but but Pesach is like intimate. There's an intimacy here. The fact that it's eaten in the home. The fact that that you are to be you know holding on to each other. There is. Um, there's a degree of intimacy here, which which you don't find at Sukkot. I'm not sure about the distinction because, you know, like the Rambam says in, in Hilchot Yom Tov, one wonderful line. He says, you know, um, if you if you just celebrate with your own family and you don't open the door to the poor and you don't go to make sure everybody has a place, then then it's not Simchat Yom Tov. It's Simchat Kereso. It's like it's not not the joy of a holiday. It's just the the joy of your own filling your own big belly. And, and so I do think that in Sukkot, we similarly have a sense that the, that the feasting places are, um, are public. Um, you bring other people into that family. And I think that the way we celebrate Sidarim, for the reason that Barry said, if the house is too small to eat the lamb itself, you got to bring other people, you got to bring other people, you got to bring other people. And, and the Talmud imagines like all of Israel celebrating up on the Temple Mount. I think that there's an element that is, that is, well, I guess the word I would say is communal, not, not, uh, you know, in the sense of sharing, sharing communion, sharing right. a meal. So I'll say something controversial, which is communal, but Jewish. In the sense oh. that I mean, and and the Bible itself prohibits the uh, consumption of the the korban pesach by uncircumcised people, and so in a way, it's saying, look, the covenantal experience is a unique experience that it belongs to the the people of Israel, and people outside of the covenant 
do not get to partake of the covenantal meal. I think that puts us at, at great odds, you know, in, in the modern period where, where so many of our families include non-Jews and we want to be hospitable to them, of course. And we would never say to someone, you know, who's part of our family that you can't come to the Seder. But there is this deeper tension within the, the Passover experience. And I, I, I always, you know, get... get um, agitated or excited about this whenever I see, you know, another Haggadah, you know, uh, that is, that is, that is outside of the, like, the, telling a different kind of story, basically. And, and it's a great paradigm. The, the Seder is a fantastic model for experiences and narrative, but it's, it's uniquely Jewish. It's particularly Jewish is what I'm saying. Well, I, I would have to take issue with you. Um, for this, as you know, there is a tradition not to have non-Jews come to the Seder based on the pasuk that you mentioned about the uncircumcised not participating in the, the Korban Pesach, the Pesach sacrifice. But that was for the days when the temple stood. And we no longer live in a world with the temple. And maybe our understanding of the covenant and the nation has changed. And that we want to be more inclusive when we can be and not so reductionist when it comes to the celebration of Pesach. You know, we call it in our traditions, Man Chirutenu, the time of our freedom. And I think at heart, we believe that freedom is the birthright of all human beings, not just the Jews. I agree. And, and, and I would say great, great narrative for another holiday, for, for Sukkot, you know. I mean... I, I don't. I don't want to. You know. Obviously, we'll be hospitable. Obviously, you know, welcome and and teach and and be, and be you know as universal as possible. But, but there there's there's a fundamental tension going on here, and I think it's it's it it does it does manifest itself in contemporary Jewish life. Right, it does. But I I think we need to be cautious when we veer off into thinking that the national means being parochial. I think there is a universal dimension to nationality as well. Uh, yeah, and, but, um, this is such a complicated conversation because on the one hand, the story that we tell w- without the particularist dimension, without saying, you know, Avadim Hayinu, the father yeah. of Mitzrayim, and if God had not taken us, we were slaves, and this is our experience that we're, we're driving home, and if we were not slaves, if we were not taken out, we, we would still be there. And that's the experience that we try to reinforce, which is a particular experience. And I, I in, instinctively, I agree that the fullest richness of, of Pesach has to, has to reckon with that. And it's impossible not to notice that one of the great elements of religious borrowing, um, you know, in the contemporary world, especially has to do with Black Americans and the appropriation of the Exodus story. Uh, that is like just a, a fabulously inspiring, you know, use of shared religious tradition. So, of, of course, it is true that this that this speaks to more than just us. And I believe that our practice of Passover is, um, you know, is is a like a, a profoundly particularistic kind of moment. Yeah, you know, I, 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 look, I think it's reflected in this chapter in, in Exodus. I mean, you know, I don't want to do too much projection there, although that's what I'm doing. <laughs> <It's just insane. laughs> Chapter 12 speaks to, to a certain part of the Jewish condition, which is that, that this is the intimate experience of family or family joined together with other families and that, and that your family experience, as we all know, and as every person watching this knows, when you're with your family, 
alone or even with the first or second degree around your family it's a different it's a microculture and you are you are encoding your story your personal and familial story which includes the thing outside into that very very um, sensitive and beautiful and delicate and fragile entity and system of, of the family look i you know i i love the communal seder and I, and 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 i I miss the opportunity, really, quite emotionally, to of of having that, especially during these years when when we we can't do it. Um, they're they're remarkable experiences to have a large communal seder. Really, I I love them. Um, but the private family experience, you know, that's when you know you 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 encode memories. Your child recites the Manishtana for the first time. I mean, it it it's it's. Uh, it's one of those great moments, you know, and, and it's not only about that, it's about saying, here's the moment, here, here are the experiences that, that we will give to, to our children that they will remember much more than just, you know, sitting around. They'll, they'll remember the love and the content and the, and the food and the, the laughter and the joy of being a family. So it's all, all that combined. It's, a, it's, it's mysterious in, in all that ways. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to have to leave it. We're going to have to conclude on that note. Shabbat Chodesh, Rosh Chodesh Nisan. We want to wish everyone a good Shabbos. And we'll see you again on the next edition of Parsha Talk. Thanks for joining Shabbat Shalom, Chodesh